0: All Hello, everyone, and welcome to the DealMaker Show. So today we have a really exciting founder, and I think that we're going to be learning a lot about fintech, building, scaling, financing, and, a, you know, story that is fueled with adrenaline for five years, you name it. So I think that we're going to learn a lot. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Brandon Crick. Welcome to the show.
1: Awesome. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to, to be here and to chat about all things fintech.
0: So quite an interesting uh, upbringing. So born in New York City and then raised in New Rochelle, and then you happened to end up in South Florida. So how was life growing up?
1: Yeah, it was. It was a lot. You know, a lot of learnings. You know, I grew up in a in a in a great home with a you know great parents who uh, had some some big financial struggles. You know, and in, in you know when I was you know reaching my my teen years and we ended up moving to South Florida and you know lived a different type of life that that I look back on now and really value. I think it framed a lot of my, of my, you know, current views in the world. And it was great. I mean, I I wouldn't change anything if I look back. It was, uh, it was cool. And I like living in Florida and I loved living in New York as well. And I'm happy to be back in New York now.
0: And I'm sure that you miss the sun of Florida, especially during winters in New York City.
1: Uh, Yeah, I definitely do. And I'm not a big (laughs) fan of the cold. (laughs) I hear
0: you. I hear you. So at what point do you decide, you know, it's time to move back to New York City?
1: You know, I, I graduated high school and I just had no idea what I wanted to do. I was just confused and ended up going to culinary school and then decided that that wasn't right for me or what I wanted. Although I know how to cook now, which is cool. But I um, ended up going to school and then I, I decided that I just wasn't doing enough with my life down there. And I wanted to move to New York and get into into financial services, work on Wall Street. And I uh, moved up to New York in 1998 and uh, got very lucky. I met... Two guys that had just started a company uh, called Trade and joined them in, in 1998. And I was uh, early in the electronic trading uh, world. And ultimately, uh, they made me a partner of the business. And yeah, I think moving back to New York is definitely an amazing thing that I, that I did early. And I'm happy I did it.
0: And obviously now, you know, everyone, you know, when you say electronic trading, I mean, you get a sense and a glimpse of that. But back in 98, you probably a lot of people were like, what, what, what is that?
1: Yeah, it's so, I, it's a, you know, a lot of people that have working at Stash only know electronic trading, you know, back in the day, the, the the what you see in the movies now with the NYC exchange floor with, you know, all the guys and screaming and yelling and, you know, passing paper around. I, we looked at that and we're like, that's insane. Computers could do it more efficiently. Computers can do it in a way where the customer is put first. And it's not about how big you are or how loud you are on an exchange floor, but you know, how much work you've done or how much prep you've done to, to own a stock or to sell a stock. And yeah, we, we started inserting computerized orders into the market and ultimately built a very, very large business, um, that ultimately was, uh, that got acquired by a firm called Knight Capital Group in 2008 or 2007. And, you know, it was a really cool ride because we had to innovate everything and build everything, but it wasn't During a time where there was AWS, so there was, but in the early days, there wasn't. So we literally had to like put racks of servers in a closet and write everything from scratch. And it was, it was a lot of work, but it was really fulfilling seeing now everything's electronic. And when we started, it wasn't. So I feel like, you know, I did my, my small part in changing an industry, which is cool.
0: And it's amazing because you were with Edge Trade for quite a while, I mean, over nine years. And then you even stayed with uh, Knight Capital for five years, you know, after they did the acquisition, which I'm sure, you know, it was uh, an exciting outcome because I see that it was publicly disclosed that it was, a uh, $60 million. So, I mean, for you, you know, the first uh, type of rodeo, you know, like super interesting to see it all the way to the finish line. So I guess especially during the the, like prior to the acquisition, you know, if you had to go back and, and really kind of like uh, think about all those nine and a half years of building and scaling a business, I guess, what kind of like big lesson do you take away, you know, like from, from that experience? with You
1: You know, I, I, it's the same lessons that, that I luckily am able to carry into stash now is that every day you're learning and you have to listen. You have to listen very attentively to your customers. And when you listen <clears throat> and you learn, your customers will ultimately tell you what to do. You know, not you know, if you ask enough of your customers and you really hone in on a pain and understand the problem that you're solving and you're solving a real problem, not making one up, then you could ultimately build a really great business. And I learned early on that sometimes when I put my ego into things and said, I know what the customer needs. I'm not even gonna ask the customer, I'm just gonna build what I think they want. Those things never really worked. But when you ask your customers for feedback and to partner with you, things go great. And that's an early learning that I've had, and just you know. Being consultative with your customers, and that, and, and you know, that business at Edge Trade and night was um, a B two B business. It wasn't you know a direct to consumer business like I'm in now. But it, it, the same principles apply. You know, don't try to invent a problem, but be a painkiller to a problem that exists, a, a big problem that exists. And and that was a big le- lesson I learned. And I think you know it goes to you know gray hair theory is that just pay attention to mistakes that you made, learn from mistakes because I believe that. You know, micro failure is a really good thing. You know, if you fail at something or you fail at any little thing, as long as you learn from it and you iterate, you're going to be great. And you're going to be okay. It's when you constantly make the same mistake over and over again and have the same failures over and over again where things become problematic. And so, we were able to to build that straight up and and and, and innovate while we built this business, and and it, it had a great outcome. And you know, I stayed at night for. Over five years because the culture was great it was a great place to work and it was really cool because I got to see that you know the little baby that I helped create at edge trade grew up you know Knight was trading um almost a little bit over a quarter of the u s stock market volume every day it was crazy so it was a great seat to have at at a great time and it was a lot of fun but ultimately you know you know i I had to move on and, and then ultimately left but it was a, it was a cool run it was like almost i think it was like 14, 15 years, technically, I was at the same job, which is wild, uh, considering nowadays that's not normal.
0: So I guess from the time, you know, at Knight Capital Group, you probably learned as well about integration, right? Because you go through the acquisition, then you stay for five years with them. I mean, maybe you you got a lesson or two about integration. What would those lessons be? Um, I mean, integration in what regard? Because in an M&A, in an acquisition, in an acquisition, Integration is a beast. Integration is super difficult. So maybe you know, as as the acquisition actually happened, and then you know, like you really transition. You know, the business was under the umbrella of Knight Capital Group. Maybe you kind of like learned a thing or two uh, as to how you do that integration. You know, with flying colors.
1: Yeah. Well, I don't know if any integration is super simple. They're they're all really hard. But you know, you know, when we integrated Knight uh, when they took Edge Trade over was. You know, had a lot of systems that they ran. They were a really, really big firm, and you know, making our system work there took it took time. Luckily, they gave us a lot of time to do it. I think it took us about a year, a year and a half to fully integrate everything over. But one of the things that they did, which I thought was really cool, is that they were really good at integrating our culture. Because you know, from from '98 on, we were a true startup, and we acted like a startup. We moved really fast. We we tried to be lean. We tried to ship software quickly. We tried to iterate quickly. And one of the concerns that you always have moving a business into another business is is, it, is the culture going to break? Because if the culture starts breaking, then you not only have problems with your customers, but you start having problems with your employees. And, you know, any good acquisition keeps its employees, especially the employees you need to have around. And so Knight was able to help work with us to make sure that that, um, Happens on both dimensions that from a technology and integration perspective, it was easy and seamless to get it in, although it took a little time, but also that we were able to keep the important things that the employees cared about at Ed Trade, they got to keep those important things at night. And I think that's really important um, in any integration. It's not just about the, the product. It's also about the key employees that you want to keep and and have them continue to be a big part of the company. And, you know, that Ed trade business is still going on right now and a lot of the original employees that were there in in the early 2000s still work there today which I think is wow. really cool that is that is really cool
0: and then after spending 5 years here uh, after the acquisition then you go to Macquarie and and obviously you had a big time job there and you decide to 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 really give that up and but at least it was a pivotal moment because here you met your co-founder at stash so tell us about that segue, and especially this short stint at the Macquarie, which only lasted for a little bit over a year.
1: Yeah, Macquarie was um, Macquarie is a really cool place. I, I, I not only loved working there, but I made a lot of great friends there. You know, they they had reached out to me after I left night and said, hey, do you want to come uh, to Macquarie and build a, a, a global electronic trading business that kind of looks like, you know, your old startup? And I said, well, yeah, I do. It's really awesome. And so they had um, they had this One of their amazing employees was this guy named Ed Robinson, who was uh, located in London. And Ed uh, and his wife uh, moved to New York, and Eddie and I partnered up to build this new business. And I was there for about, uh, it was actually more than a year, it was almost a little over two. And what I learned is, is that although, you know, we were able to accomplish the things we wanted, um, there was a great story that happens about uh, a little over a year in. Somebody who worked in, uh, uh, at the bank giving advice out to customers walked over to Eddie and I saying, Hey, um, I have some extra money. What do you do, Eddie? What are you doing with your money? Where would you invest some extra money? And Eddie and I looked at each other and <clears throat> we said, You know, boy, we're, like, we're in electronic trading. Like, I wonder why he's asking, I, I, well, why is he asking you, Eddie, this question? And one day we walked outside and we just decided to ask, Someone else in the street the same question. So we walked over to someone in the street. and We said, "Hey, do you invest? Do you save? Um, tell us about it." And I'll never forget this. The person was like, "Oh no, no, I really, I really want to invest. I just, I don't, I don't do it." And we're like, "Why don't you invest?" And they're like, "Oh, I don't understand it. It's so confusing." I was like, "Really? They're like why else?" And they're like, "Oh, I'll invest later when I'm rich." And I said to the person, "What's rich?" And the person said, "I don't know, but it doesn't matter. I'll do it later." we're like, oh, my goodness, that just happened. That's interesting. And this is around the same time that a lot of um, consumer fintech companies were launching into the market. And, you know, we didn't do anything right away. I don't think any like to be I mean, some founders would say they had an immediate light bulb that went off. We didn't. But we knew there was something going on here. And, you know, it took us some time to, to figure out that we wanted to do something, Eddie and I, in consumer to really truly do something a consumer. We couldn't, uh, do it while we worked inside of a bank. We couldn't, it, it wasn't fair to our employer and it wasn't fair to, to, to our families or our time. So ultimately we spoke to Macquarie and we both resigned. And the first thing that we did after we left was go right back to the street and just start asking everyone that would listen to us and talk to us the same question. And Alejandro, I'm telling you, Every single person that we asked said the same exact thing. I really want to invest. I don't understand it. It's so confusing. I never learned about this at home. My parents never taught it. I didn't learn about investing or money at school. So I'll do it later. But we never had anyone say, I'll never do it. It was always the kick to can down the road game. And so we said, all right, I think we know what we need to do here. We need to build a new type of private bank. We need to build a wealth manager for the non-wealthy. So basically, for eighty percent of America, and that's kind of the you know the the very condensed story of you know how we got from meeting each other at Macquarie to literally just walking up to strangers in the street, and it and those conversations that we had, just with just so many amazing people that would talk to us, and I'm I'm talking hundreds of people, um, really set what we're doing now at Stash in motion.
0: So then, how do you guys arrive to really hitting it on? product market fit.
1: Oh, that's, that's, that's a big story. So we had to do a few things. First, we had to uh, uh, open a bank account and get some money. And so Eddie and I used our a lot of our own money and a lot of our friends and family wanted to support us in, in building this new type of financial company. And um, I think we raised like, I think it was like a half million bucks uh, in total, and we put it in the bank. And we really wanted to go and approach investing and financial services or FinTech in a consumer first way, but in a way that um, really was led by by solving the biggest pain the customers had. And if you remember back to what I just said, it was always what we heard when we asked people about this was, "I don't understand it. I never learned about it." And so that was the first thing that we realized is that to build a financial services company that's going to really you know do well and actually do well by its customers, we had to lead with education and. We, we needed to build a financial education platform in addition to an investing platform, in addition to everything else that we're building that we wanted to build when we launched. So that was the first thing. The second thing we learned, and we, we really studied an industry that most people don't relate to financial services. We studied the weight loss industry. And we, we studied the weight loss industry really closely. And we looked at Weight Watchers. Weight Watchers has a very you know interesting, good model, which is you don't tell someone you need to lose 30 pounds overnight. Instead, you help them lose one pound and you celebrate them. And then you help them lose two more pounds and you celebrate them again and you make them feel good and you make them see that they can reach those huge, huge milestones by having little, small, incremental wins. And so we said, well, how do we replicate that with investing and saving? And so we decided to build something called AutoStash, which basic- basically helps people build, uh, save small amounts of money on a regular basis. And you know, we can talk about how these products are doing now. I'll, I'll give you a recap of that after, but they're, they're quite frankly incredible now. And they've changed a lot of lives for a lot of our customers uh, over the years. Um, we also didn't want to do, we didn't want to um, be like a robo-advisor where you give us the money and we invest it for you. We wanted to be there with you on the investing journey, but we wanted you to invest with intent. So we wanted you to choose what you invested in. And we would give it to you in a super simple way that wasn't written the way of Wall Street, but written the way of Stash, which is we're going to give you the information that you need to make a choice. We're going to teach you and educate you about all the things you need to understand, like what's an ETF, what's a dividend, what's an expense ratio. But we're going to do it in a way where we're not going to take someone else's content and just put our name on it. We went out and hired teachers. And one of of the our early, early employees, um, I believe it was like a second or third grade school teacher. And she joined our team to help us teach investing to our customers as they were investing. It kind of looks like STEM basically, you know, and you tinker as you learn engineering, you are investing as you're learning investing and you're learning how to save as you save. Um, and the last thing is we heard a lot when we were talking to people in the street that I need to be rich to start. And we said, what's rich and no one can answer that question. So we said, we have to get rid of this whole hurdle. All the hurdles of of that Wall Street has typically put up that you need to have a lot of money to start, or you need to have this huge minimum. We said, well, we're going to have to build a fractional investing platform. And we're going to drop the minimum to $5. And we've went on now to drop the minimum to a penny. Because we can't have anyone say that they can't afford to do it because the biggest obstacle that people have is they're not starting. But once they start, they start building that good, good habit. And that's what we put together is V one of stash. And we launched it October 15th of 2015 in the market. And, uh, we, uh, very quickly opened uh, a couple of a thousand accounts the first day from a launch list that we had. And then it got kind of quiet. And then Apple out of nowhere featured us as like the best app in the app store, like our first week. And we were not ready for that, by the way. And, uh, And we opened another huge wave of accounts. But then things settled down to numbers that weren't good. You know, less than 100 new accounts a day in the early, you know, weeks and months. And so we realized that, great, we built a prototype, an MVP. We got it into the market. Um, Now, how are we going to actually find product market fit and scale this thing? So then what was that moment? Because obviously when the feature
0: of Apple goes away, then it's like you're in the desert, you know, trying to find your <laughs> way. And uh, so how did you find eventually the way to get to where you wanted to be?
1: Yeah. So during this time we had um, raised our first uh, uh, professional uh, investment round. So institutional investment round. So an amazing uh, venture investor named Chiwa Chien from Goodwater Capital uh, reached out to Eddie and I and said, I've been watching, you know, your progress and I'd like to talk to you. And we ended up raising our first uh, seed round uh, or seed round from from Goodwater. And uh, we proceeded to have the entire team just get on the phone and call customers constantly. I mean, we just called and called and called and our engineers just started the iterating. And the process of iterating started about a week after we launched in 2015. We're still iterating. Today, the product just as much. I mean, we have a lot of a a much bigger product now with a lot, you know, wider feature set. But calling customers and iterating is just so critical. And in the early days, we did that, and we probably iterated the product a hundred or so times. And all of a sudden, the fifty accounts a day became five hundred accounts a day, which became a thousand accounts a day, which then became two thousand to three thousand. I mean, there are you know there were days we opened you know you know lots lots more accounts than that in a day but i think it was really around listening to our customers and understanding that even though we set out with this mvp and we had this really good idea what we had in our minds didn't perfectly portray into the software so we had to start the process of changing the software and as we did that we started finding that wow we're really solving a problem that our customers have which is again you know they never felt that they could invest they never felt that they would be giving a vehicle to learn how Wall Street works or how, you know, how long-term investing works. And I think it was just so powerful to, to just, to know now looking back at Stash's, you know, founding story, there was no silver bullet. There was no like grand slam home run that we could step up and hit. It was just hitting singles and singles and singles, and just continuing to listen to our customers and develop the product that way. And, And that was great. You know, and another interesting learning that I've had is that, you know, founders sometimes go into things with preconceived notions, right? So, you know, my Wall Street background of like, you know, 14 years before Stash or 15 years before Stash, I had a lot of things that I thought everybody knew. You know, I'll give you an example. Like, I thought everyone knew that when you sell a stock, um, the money's held up for two days in unsettled funds. Like I never thought that anyone wouldn't know that. And so when we were building the you know, the original, original product. We put in, you know, unsettled funds two days. And then we started seeing app store reviews come up going, Why are you locking my money up? Why are you holding my money back from me? And I was like, Uh-oh, I guess people don't know what that is. Right. So those preconceived notions are are, you know, in the early days, they are what they are. But over time we had to just just strip anything that we thought we knew um, about finance and reframe it and repackage it in a way. That the eighty percent of America that we look after can understand, and that's and that and those are all things I think led to you know the real success of Stash.
0: But without a doubt, you know the importance of listening to your customers. So hopefully, the people that are listening that are right in it, you know, right now and trying to find product market fit, hopefully they got really good insights from that. And and right now, I mean, uh, how much capital have you guys raised today that is uh, publicly disclosed?
1: Uh, we've raised. Um, yeah, like north of uh two hundred seventy-five million dollars now into the business. We just really? did our uh series F ask, round.
0: Yeah, I was gonna yeah. ask you about the latest round in the middle of COVID. How how do you do that?
1: You know, I it was it was a lot of work. It wasn't really that it was hard to raise the round, it wasn't because we have um we had uh, you know a few amazing investors come into the round. You know, we had started those conversations before COVID, so it wasn't about the difficulty of raising the round. It was just that like doing all of this over zoom and hangout calls was just new. I could tell you that, but um, you know, lending tree, uh, it's just an amazing company. They came and invested in the round, and then uh, funds managed by uh, T-Row price also came into the round. So, you know, we're able to, to add more gasoline into the stash fuel tank, which is, you know, been great for the business. And, you know, we're continuing to accelerate and continuing to grow. And, You know, the story though, like if you really think about it, where we started though, it was, you know, just a straight up, you know, micro investing platform. And we've grown up so much over the years because all of that to to what you just said, Alejandro, is like, we have to listen to our customers. And as we listened more and more post the first year of the business, we heard, I really want to put money in in a retirement account, but I don't understand how that works. Or I didn't think I could ever have a retirement account because I didn't have enough money. So we went out and built a retirement uh, platform for our customers so they can open up Roth and traditional IRAs on the platform. And then we started hearing, I really want to do this for my kids, um, but I can only have one account on the platform. So I got to pick between me or my kids. So we said, OK, we need to build a custodial platform. So we built Stash for Children so that uh, parents can open up uh, custodial accounts for their children or friends' children. And that's been a wild success. We heard. From a lot of our customers uh, through our call center asking us about insurance. Hey, can you help me with life insurance? Can you help me with renter's insurance? We said, why? Why are all these people, why are our customers asking us about this? We started calling up customers and learning, and what we learned is that there's just a ton of confusion over life insurance. That is something that everybody should have. It's just people think it's way too expensive, or the policies that they hear are you know way too big. Or the industry just confuses people, so you have to use a broker to do it. and so we went out and became a, a fifty state uh, insurance broker and integrated uh, insurance sales into our product, which has been a huge success not only for us but for our customers and And lastly, we wanted to be the core bank for our customers. So we went out and found a partner bank and integrated banking in a stash, and um, you know, we just crossed over a million bank accounts open after a year on the platform and we could talk more about that cuz it's really it's really cool what we're doing on the banking side but but I think it's all about listening and our customers have almost in some ways formed our product roadmap for us by telling us where their pains are so obviously you know like
0: you were listening to the customers you develop all these different you know ways of of giving them essentially what they were asking you but but I'm wondering how do you maintain simplicity you know all across the board and especially when you go through different types of market conditions as well?
1: So, look, I, the one thing I've learned over the years is it's really, really, really easy to add a bunch of new features. And it's really, really hard to keep a product simple. And so, you know, I think it just comes down to having, you know, amazing, uh, amazing employees and, and, and my partners in the business, which is, you know, we have 270 uh, employees at Stash now that really listen to the customer and understand who our customers are. Our customers are the aspiring Americans, but not the wealthy. And so, there are a million options for people out there who have a lot of money. Not a lot. Not a lot of options for for eighty percent of America. And so, we have to know who our customer is and who we're serving, and then keep and continuously remind ourselves that we have to build products that they understand and that they could use and make make a big part of their life. So you have to do that through following, you know, almost a principled approach to building product, which is just keep it simple. Keep it simple. Simple in copy, simple imagery, simple in design. Um, simple doesn't mean a bad product. Simple just means understandable to the customer. And that's something that, you know, is, is, is a big focus point of ours. And we have to constantly um, just go back and keep looking at our products to keep refining them and making them better for the customer.
0: I know. I hear you. I hear you. So, so imagine, Brandon, that tonight you go to sleep. And, you know, it's an amazing snooze. You wake up like five years later. I mean, unbelievable, right? And then all of a sudden you wake up in a world where the vision of Stash is fully realized. What does that world look like?
1: Uh, That's a great question. I I, I do go to sleep thinking about this. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, I, you know, I'd like to see Stash have north of 25 million customers. Um, I think we're going to do that. Um, Banking and investing and saving on Stash. I mean, one of the things that we're, Really proud of is something we built called stockback. So every time you spend on the stash card, you get stock wherever you spend. So if you go to Walmart and spend on the card, you become an owner, a shareholder in Walmart. If you take an Uber or Lyft, you become a shareholder in, in Uber or Lyft. And get gas at Chevron, get 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 stock at Chevron. And I love this concept of building a portfolio that mimics and mirrors how you live your life. And so I think that everyone in America should be doing this because Everyone should be an owner in the brands that they spend at, and everyone should receive not only great products from the companies they spend at, but all the lifetime benefits they should get through stock ownership. So I think that we're just in an incredible spot. I think that we're starting to think a lot about um, the liability side now, how to make and bring transparency into lending, um, how to make sure that our customers are aware of their credit and their credit score and how their life changes affect their credit score. So we're really, I have not think we've scratched the surface yet on how much we could do for our customers, but we've literally opened over 5 million customers to date. We did that in about four years. We actually, I think yesterday we crossed over 5 million uh, open customer accounts, which is really cool. Wow. And we That's haven't right. even scratched the surface. Yeah. Thank you. It's, it's That's so amazing.
0: cool. That's amazing. So so obviously this is your second rodeo now with Stash and, and you know, I'm sure that, you know they, they there's a lot of people in the audience that, that are waiting for me, you know, the people that are listening, you know, for me to ask you the question that I typically ask the, the guests that come on the show. And that is, if you had the opportunity to have a chat with that younger Brandon, you know, that younger Brandon that perhaps recently moved to New York City and that was you know, thinking about maybe doing something or starting something, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self uh, and why, knowing what you know now before launching a business?
1: <laughs> I tell myself to shut my mouth more and <laughs> listen more. <laughs> I talking. love it.
0: You know, <laughs> no, I, I I wish I, I you know, again, that's my same the same thing
1: I would tell myself. I love it. A hundred percent.
0: Would you mind would you mind expanding a little bit more on that, Brandon?
1: No, it's just that, you know, I think you know, when when I was younger, I you know, I I thought I knew a lot, you know, and I when as as I get older I realize that I really didn't know shit to quite frankly, and I needed to <laughs> just listen and learn and just keep learning and, and listening. And, uh, you know, I, I've, I've grown so much since I was, you know, you know, moved to New York and got into startups. And I, I think that's, that's just really important advice. Just keep listening. Because again, like everything that I think I've done in my career, and I know Eddie, I can speak for Eddie on this, is about listening to your customers and learning and then being able to give them back solution, real solutions to the big problems they're having not trying to make up a problem and solve it. And I, I think that listening is what yields that. And I think it's one of the reasons that we're doing really well at Stash and and why and hopefully we'll continue to do really well.
0: I love it. So Brandon, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh,
1: I would love for people to write me. It's Brandon at com. Brandon at com. We just bought our domain, by the way, after years we bought our domain. It's really Oh, you did? Fun. Very yeah. nice. Very nice. any
0: any action on social media, Brandon, on Twitter, LinkedIn, or anything like that?
1: Uh, My Twitter name is at BrandonKrieg1. Brandon, K-R-I-E-G-1.
0: Amazing. Well, Brandon, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thank you so much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com you've reached the end of another episode of the DealMakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremates.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.